Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams one film at a time. Starting with his debut as a film composer in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. And welcome back, everybody. Today's episode deals with a film that John Williams fans either know very, very well or only have a vague notion that it exists. Cinderella Liberty. I'm happy to have a guest with me today who counts this as one of his favorite John Williams scores. Coming from the United Kingdom, please allow me to welcome Chris Hatt to the show. Chris, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Jeff. It's a real pleasure to join you for this episode of The Baton, or Baton, as we say in the UK. I've been an avid listener from the start, and the podcast has quickly become something to look forward to every Wednesday morning. So firstly, congratulations on creating this thing, and also for getting this far. Thank you. And I was so glad to hear that I had a chance to talk about Cinderella Liberty. It was one of the first scores I heard by John Williams that seemed to me to be outside of the box, compared to what he was most famous for, and it opened up a whole world of lesser-known Williams scores that continually prove his ability to both adapt to any musical style required, as well as retain that distinct Williams sound. And before we go on, I think the listeners want to know about your musical background. Well, I come from a musical family, and music always seemed to be a natural career to head towards, but I had no idea exactly what I wanted to do. I did at one stage set my sights on becoming a film composer and even enrolled in a London film school to study, but it was musical theatre work that I started to enjoy during my time at university, and I found myself being drawn more and more to this kind of work. So when I left education, I threw myself into musicals, playing piano and directing orchestras, and that's what I still do. I now work in London's West End, currently on the musical Hamilton, and feel very fortunate to earn a living from my hobby. I still write music when I can, although it's often hard to find the time or the peace and quiet. Anyway, enough about me, let's get back to the movie. Well, it's hard for me to, to just get back to the movie because Hamilton's one of my favorite shows, so I'm very honored to have someone who works on it in the UK as part of it. So thank oh, you well, again for well, being it's here. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. All right, so Cinderella Liberty is the fifth John Williams score released in 1973, and it reteamed him with Mark Rydell for the third time. The two had a wonderful working relationship with the Reavers and the Cowboys, and Cinderella Liberty was going to be a very radical genre shift for the two. For starters, it's not a Western or a period piece, but rather a straightforward light drama set in the present day, which would have been the 1970s. The only thing all three films have in common are children as one or more of the main characters. Chris, when you wrote to me asking to be a co-host on the podcast, you said that the score to Cinderella Liberty was one you, quote, absolutely love. Why is that? Well, like I said, this was the score that opened up a door outside of the world of Star Wars, E.T. and Indiana Jones. Here's a film that deals with humans simply interacting with other humans, not aliens or spaceships or monsters. And perhaps this is a score that doesn't need to make believable the make-believe. The music has so much honest humanity to it. Even after listening to 30-plus episodes of The Baton, it seems here for the first time like the musical shackles were off, and this was Williams doing what he wanted in a medium he enjoyed and was passionate about. I felt the same when I first heard the score to Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can in 2002, with all that fascinating jazz interplay between vibraphone and saxophone. Jazz is often described as improvised musical conversation, and both these films present relationships between two people from different worlds trying to understand each other. So it's clear that this medium, in the right hands, works as a perfect musical accompaniment to this idea. And as far as the film itself, what did you think of it? I really like it. Obviously, its subject matter was never going to age well over the last 45 years, and of course it feels dated and almost uncomfortable in places. But the writing is good, the cast are excellent, and the film successfully portrays this seedy world in which simply survival is hard enough, and any compassion, romance and happiness that can be found alongside that survival is so unlikely 
that it's immediately mistrusted and often thrown away. In preparation for this podcast, I read the original novel for the first time, and that was also very interesting. Both the novel and the film's screenplay were written by the same author, Daryl Ponison, so I was expecting very similar pieces of work. However, this was not the case. Clearly, Rydell wanted to focus on the audience looking into that central relationship, as opposed to the book's more first-person view from the character of Bags. This makes reading the novel a much darker experience, as the reader sees Bags's flaws from within rather than viewing them from a distance. The other thing to point out is that the novel spends much more time looking at day-to-day military life as a sailor, and I wasn't surprised to read that the author had served in the US Navy. In fact, his working life in the 1960s show all the ingredients to writing this book. Three years as a sailor, a year as a social worker, then three years as an English teacher. But Jeff, what did you think of the movie? Well, I first saw the film in the late 1990s when I was flipping through the channels and saw that this was coming on. At the time, I had been making a list of John, film, John Williams' films I had to see, and this was one of them. I thought at the time it was an interesting departure for James Caan to play a sailor named Bags who says he rarely curses and doesn't hit women, especially since this came the year after his Oscar-nominated performance as the violent Sonny Corleone in The Godfather. But as good as he was, Marsha Mason was better as Maggie. The hooker with the heart of gold role was always an attention getter, but Mason kept it gritty and real. And working with a preteen child was going to be a rehearsal for Mason's bigger role four years later in The Goodbye Girl. There are lots of cliches abound in this plot, but I feel Mark Rydell did a good job traversing all of them. And the score was very different from anything I had heard from John Williams at that time. When I first watched the movie and listened to the score, I was amazed at all the folksy, jazzy feel of it. And after watching it again all these years later, it's of course no surprise that Williams could write a score with a jazz feel to it, given his upbringing and education in the jazz music genre. I I absolutely agree. And I think it's worth mentioning at this point that despite John Williams' early output often being described as his jazz era, I find this label slightly misleading as although those early comedies he became known for are certainly jazz-influenced, I really wouldn't call them straight-up jazz scores, and I'm sure Williams wouldn't have done either. In fact, I came across a recording just last week of Williams in his mid-twenties playing jazz standards on the piano. His command of harmony, blues, really advanced jazz techniques truly impressive and go way beyond that kookiness of any of that early film work. I imagine when discussing the score with Mark Rydell, Williams was encouraged to revisit his jazz roots but stay true to them and not just rely on them for fun or comedic effect. Right, I think that really drew him to this project. And the film includes two original songs with music by John Williams and lyrics by Paul Williams. At the time of Cinderella Liberty, Paul Williams was principally known as the main lyricist for The Carpenters, writing lyrics for Rainy Days and Mondays, and We've Only Just Begun, both of which went to number one. And I think Paul Williams could have retired on the royalties from We've Only Just Begun, which is still performed at weddings and covered by many singers. But he would become a hot commodity in 1976 with Evergreen from A Star is Born, and then with The Rainbow Connection from The Muppet Movie in 1979. In many instances, Paul Williams seems to write lyrics that aren't as memorable as the melodies, with the exception of the two songs I just mentioned. I think that's true for the two songs he wrote with John Williams for Cinderella Liberty. I have been unable to find out if John Williams wrote the melodies for the songs long before asking Paul Williams to collaborate, or if the music and lyrics came around the same time. Usually, John Williams writes the melody, then a lyricist comes in a short time later to supply a lyric around it. So Chris, let's listen to the first song we hear in the film. It's a funky song called Wednesday Special. A little lovin' makes me feel all fresh inside A good woman's like a friendly bar Like a Wednesday special or a good cigar Sound seas calling. I've got no time to 
stall My nerves are steady, I'm always ready The whole world knows I'm having a ball You know, baby, I'm a laugh-a-minute man You know, baby, I was built to swing Let my friends all tell me I'm the party king And once I know you, the things I'll show you I've seen and done it all My friends surround me, my love astounds me And I'm just happy now The song gets an instrumental overture when we first see James Conn's character, John Baggs, leave the Navy ship for a weekend in Seattle. The bass and guitar set things up nicely, then there's a voice harmonizing over it coming from someone who sounds like he smoked too many cigarettes. <laughs> Turns out that's Paul Williams doing the vocals for Wednesday Special. He wasn't really known for his singing talent, but he would provide vocals on lots of songs in the future, including his movie flop Phantom of the Paradise the following year. So Chris, what do you think of this song, Wednesday Special? Well, it's an interesting one, and could not be more different in style to the other main song in this movie. I guess Mark Rydell wanted to set the tone of these two characters musically so there'd be no doubt of their different personalities. It's also interesting that, apart from bookending the film, the Wednesday special melody only appears again twice in the entire movie, once when Bags and Maggie have had their meaningless first encounter and he's back on the streets looking for more of a good time, and secondly when Bags and Doug are bonding over interests that represent Bags's sailor life, whereas the rest of the score is dominated by Maggie's theme, the love theme. I think this is surely a suggestion that Bags is changing his ways to accommodate Maggie into his life much more than the other way around, whilst reserving his sailor charm for the impressionable young boy he's quickly becoming a father figure towards. Wednesday Special has a heavy, slow, bluesy beat behind it that represents the grit and drudgery of Bags's personality. But there's also a sense of fun in the vocals and in the playful harmonica improvising around those blues chords. Bags clearly has many sides to him, but right now he's on shore for one thing only, and that driving bluesy beat is what he needs to find it. I think it's a good song to open the movie, but I want to talk about the second song that was composed for the film. It's my opinion that Nice To Be Around is one of the best love themes Williams has ever written, having the capacity to underscore various different emotions without much alteration at all, and this melody is very much the core of this film's soundtrack. Hello, such a simple way to start a love affair Should I jump right in and say how much I care Would you take me for a madman or a simple-hearted clown? Hello, with affection from a sentimental fool To a little girl who's broken every rule 
one who brings me up when all the others seem to let me down one who's nice to be around should I say that it's so blue without Things that never seemed to last That we're both a bit embarrassed by our past But I think there's something special In the feelings we found And you're nice to be around I like it because it is pretty much the love theme, as you said, but not the kind of love theme we love from Williams, with lush strings and flowing melodies. This also has that funky blues vibe to mirror the lives of Bags and Maggie. The romance has a dark side to it, but John Williams does a good job of supplying the right tone, with Paul Williams essentially putting general lyrics underneath. Nice to be around is only played in the film for about 90 seconds, and like the performance of Wednesday Special, is played for irony. It comes at a time when Bags and Maggie are at odds, and I sensed it was performed at this point late in the film when Bags is thinking that he made a mistake walking out on Maggie and is reminiscing about the good times they had. Well, yes, the song's lyrics come in so late in the film, just 10 minutes from the end, But for the hour between our two lead characters starting to really show their feelings towards each other and then this final vocal version, we hear almost nothing but variations on this love theme. So by the time we hear it sung, it's as though we know the song already. I'd love to talk more in depth about this song, but before we go any further, Jeff, I think we should mention the other major musical collaborator on this film, the world-renowned Belgian harmonica player Toots Thielmans who effortlessly performs the music just as a singer would approach a song, proving that with the right composer and right performer, you do not need lyrics to tell a story. And we're going to hear Thielman's at work a little bit later. Williams's approach to scoring this film is different from his two previous scores in Rydell's films. There isn't any underscore until about 50 minutes in, though he writes a good deal of what is called source music when we first meet Maggie. Ah, yeah, the source music. Now, this is the maestro getting down and dirty. I love this. It's clearly about Williams just having fun with a genre that he rarely gets to write in. Pure 70s funky bar music. And yet, even with this style of music so unassociated with him, I love finding those those bits of pure Williams that have his signature all over them, despite that signature not really being established until a few years later. The part of this cue I want to highlight is just 16 seconds in. Up to this point, we've had some funky Latin percussion over a deep synth bass. Then a unison brass figure enters with some wah-wah guitar behind it, almost giving us a question and answer pass around. But then, at that 16 second mark, the brass split into triads, or major chords. Here is the first 25 seconds of the track entitled New Shooter.
and suddenly, harmonically, we're into Star Wars territory and the rebel fanfare. Honestly, stay with me. Both moments from two very different films are about presenting a strong melody where every note has a major triad, a major chord built underneath it, giving a really strong tonal centre to the melody, even when clashing heavily against what's happening underneath. Now, now, Jeff, I know this podcast appeals to everyone from non-musicians who just love good film music to professional musicians who study it. I want to reach out to all your listeners with this, so if you're happy for me to demonstrate on the piano, I'd like to try. Please be my guest. Great, thank you. So a major triad or chord underneath a melody note is made by adding two notes underneath it, like this. This is the note G. And if I add an E and a C, there we have our major triad, our major chord. There are 12 different notes in a standard octave, which gives us 12 different major triads. Now, think about Star Wars. Let's look at the first, let's look at the melody for the Rebel fanfare in Star Wars. You'll recognize this. Now, when using this technique, Williams often has a single bass note underneath. So let's add that bass note in now so we get a sense of which key we're in. That'll help ground the music and give it some foundation. Then finally, we add our triads underneath every single one of the melody notes, and we get this. And you can hear that although some of those major chords don't necessarily fit with the bass, they give the music such a sense of purpose and strength, perfect for an attack on the Death Star. However, Let's not, get, let's not get ahead of ourselves, and back we come to 1970s Seattle. By building this music up in the same way, we're going back to the new shooter track now, we first have our melody, which goes like this. Now, in the same way as before, we add the bass. Finally, we've got two melodies there. Remember what I said about the, the question and answer thing? On the answer, the second part of the tune, we can add the triads. Okay, so it's a tiny moment to get so excited about. But like I said, for me, the joy of studying a composer's entire musical output is finding these small ideas that will later grow into huge trademarks that can help define a career as successful as John Williams. But Jeff, before we move on, I just want to play one more theme from Williams that uses a very similar technique. I was thinking about this and there are so many throughout his career, but there's one that really popped into my head. I won't say what it is, but I think Jeff, you'll be covering this in about a year's time. Listen carefully to the strong melody, the single bass note, and those all-important triads. And that's my example. Good. What what is it? Okay, that's that that sounds so ah. familiar, but it's always hard for me to, to guess music when it's not it's part not the of the instrument when it's not the original yeah. instruments. I know it sounds so familiar, but okay, so tell me what it is. That's the theme tune to Jurassic Park: The Lost World. Yes, and right, it's about fifty-two episodes time. So see you in a year <laughs> yeah we'll be revisiting that i might actually play a little bit part of this episode when we get to the lost world just to remind people about that really cool so 
Anyway, back to the relative safety of the, the Q new shooter. We then get some crazy jazz playing from the band, especially a wonderful tenor sax solo with busy Hammond organ jamming away in the background. Just a portion of this track is played in the film, and it's one of those moments where I find it really hard to concentrate on anything other than this funky source music rocking away behind the dialogue. <laughs> You know, when I watched this film first in the 1990s and then now, I didn't know that the music we just heard was by John Williams. So many times the film's composer isn't hired to write that music. It's usually music from the studio vault that could be used for free. But it's very telling that Williams obviously wanted to write music for the scene to stretch his composing legs, as it were. And then, about 50 minutes into the film, we get a very extended piece of music that introduces our love theme for the first time. Remember that the song Nice to Be Around doesn't appear until almost near the end of the film, so Williams burns the melody in our brains long before putting vocals to it. Ah, and this is my favorite moment in the film and my favorite moment in the score. So in this scene, our two leading characters really start to develop feelings for each other, despite their physical relationship having started near the beginning of the film. Bags has just defended her, her honour in yet another bar, and Maggie, for the first time, sees him as maybe more than just another passing sailor. We hear the theme played on the harmonica, accompanied by acoustic guitar first. And if I may talk on a, a slightly technical level for a moment, and again use the piano for clarity, this apparently simple tune is absolute genius from Williams. We're in the key of C minor. This is C minor. And the opening guitar chord is the dominant G7, which is the fifth note of the scale. This is the most obvious beginning to a piece of music, and just in terms of setting the key and the tonal center. Here are those two chords together, which form the start of about a billion pieces of music written over the last five or so centuries. These are the two chords. Let's briefly go back, back, go back to Star Wars. Uh, for how Williams uses them to open Ben Kenobi's theme. And again. All the way through. However, in Nice to Be Around, instead of landing on the C minor, the very next chord is entirely unexpected. It's the minor version of that G dominant which straight away gives us no idea where the root of this melody lies, or dramatically, where the validity of Bag's and Maggie's relationship lies. Here it is again with the melody on top and continuing through the theme. never really settles. That's why I think it's so, it's so amazing. So we hear those slushy chords which suggest love and devotion, yet those chords don't come where we think they will. All the ingredients of their love affair point to a happy ending, but the foundations are laid in shaky ground. The lines between start, middle and end are blurred, and if we take a snapshot of this scene, either musically or dramatically, we see a perfect union 
Yet in the context of everything around it, we experience uncertainty and doubt. As I've said before, I think the genius of this melody is that with very little alteration, one can totally change the mood of the drama it's accompanying. In the film, the first statement of this theme underscores the awkward bedroom small talk. At the cue's one-minute mark, the orchestra enters with a much more tonally grounded middle section, and sure enough, the conversation moves from awkwardness to being relaxed enough to find out about each other's likes and dislikes. The third section is for solo piano, and here there's a moment of unrest in the harmony as he talks about his troubled childhood, which then segues back into our main theme when Maggie starts to look from the past to the future. And the music almost believes its own power as this idyllic relationship is being imagined. This cue is typical of why I love John Williams' music. The cue works on the soundtrack as a standalone four-minute love theme, musically satisfying with direction and shape. 
but then with the picture it was written for, it takes on its own story, breathing with the actors, sometimes representing us, the audience, and sometimes acting alongside the characters, being their voices and thoughts, no matter how misguided they might be. I think it's absolute perfection from the maestro. I agree with everything you said, Chris, and thank you so much for that demonstration. I think that really brought out how great the composition of this cue is. So I was fortunate to have the DVD version of this film with the isolated score, and so I watched this scene without dialogue and felt the music make that shift in the exact moments you describe. It's so hard to notice that shift with the dialogue in, but without it, you hear how organically it happens and I was able to hear the artistry of Toots and his harmonica. I almost felt like Toots was in the room with Maggie and Bags, playing softly in the corner. Definitely. And when that piano solo comes in as Bags kisses Maggie's scar on her back, it underscores Bags' sweet gesture, but also Maggie's unease with the emotion she's feeling. And the very next scene shows us our three main characters, Maggie, Bags, and Maggie's son, Doug, on a ferry. The music is radically different from what we just heard. It takes the Wednesday special theme and almost puts a comedic spin on the scene as Bag shows Doug around the boat. As a standalone piece of music, I like the jazz ensemble feel of it very much, but its placement was jarring from the soft love theme we were just enjoying. When Maggie almost hits rock bottom, Bags is there to clean up the mess, literally. He helps clean up the apartment, gets Maggie sober, and teaches Doug how to box. It's one of those montage scenes that composers love because there's usually no dialogue or sound effects. Williams takes the love theme, speeds it up a bit, and lets the electric guitar, flute, and saxophone underscore the different emotions playing on screen.
So I think this is another example that you were talking about, Chris, where Williams is such a genius as a composer and as an orchestrator. He knows how to manipulate a melody to make it work in any occasion. A sweeping theme on violins would have been just as good here, but I like this variation better. Absolutely, Jeff. And I'd already marked this out as my second favorite musical cue in the film. Here, John Williams really shows off his talent for orchestral pop arranging. And for anyone with access to the soundtrack, this track is called Boxing Montage. And take a listen to when the trombones come in after 44 seconds. The arrangement is just perfect. And at 1 minute 34 seconds, when that walking bass line comes in under lush strings and jazz flute, this is the moment we see Bags and Doug playing basketball together, it's just the ideal synthesis of composition, orchestration and performance. I love this track, and it shows why Williams' future with the Boston Pops Orchestra would be such a good fit. I think conducting a symphony orchestra was something he always wanted to do, and he'll have that tenure with the Boston Pops about six years from now. So the big climax of the film comes after Maggie gives birth to a baby that dies shortly thereafter. Maggie falls into despair and runs off to New Orleans, leaving bags to care for Doug. Bags comes up with a somewhat far-fetched plan to fool the Navy that he's reporting for duty, but instead he and Doug walk off the pier ready to reunite with Maggie in New Orleans. Instead of giving us a rendition of the love theme to suggest the happy ending that is to come, Williams closes out the film with Wednesday Special. The album features a reprise of the vocal by Paul Williams, but that's not featured in the final film. I'll play the vocal version here, which leads into the instrumental finale that we hear over the final shot. I've got a feeling this is working now just right. A funny feeling like I'm about to grin Like a John Wayne movie when the good guys win Before we go down there'll be a showdown We'll face them one and all But that's behind us, they'll never find us And we'll just have a ball. I wonder whether the decision to go back to the Wednesday special theme instead of the love theme was due to the question of a happy ending for Bags and Maggie ever really being on the cards. Maggie's farewell note suggested that she'd moved on 
and was with a new partner who very much wanted her to leave her old life behind. I think the happy resolution we see on screen, Bags finally leaving his old life behind and embracing his new role as dad, is what the audience comes away with. I fear that the likelihood of an eventual happy family with the three of them is slim, so Williams returning to the original theme could be seen as Bags back on the streets looking again for happiness, although now there are two of them. That's a very good way of looking at it, Chris. I do hope the three of them find happiness in New Orleans, but the way this film was going, I agree, it might not come easily. So, uh, Cinderella Liberty didn't crack $3 million at the box office, but it was made for just a bit more than $2 million anyway. Roger Ebert didn't like all the cliches he saw in the movie and couldn't get on board with the ending. The movie did wonders for Marsha Mason, with the critics calling her a fresh face and bright new talent at just 31 years old. She won the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Drama, beating three of the four women who would be nominated with her for an Academy Award. The Oscar recipient, Glenda Jackson, was nominated in the comedy category for the Golden Globes. Mason met and married playwright Neil Simon between filming Cinderella Liberty in the summer and its Christmas time premiere. Simon asked Mason to quit acting because he didn't want to be married to an actress. So, Mason quit acting for four years after Cinderella Liberty until her husband wrote The Goodbye Girl and asked her to be in it. And Mason's star grew from that film. As for James Caan, he calls his work on Cinderella Liberty one of his most memorable roles after The Godfather, though it wouldn't help get him out of being typecast as the bad guy. It wasn't until Misery in 1990 that he got a boost in his career that lasted for another 10 years or so. John Williams got a couple of Oscar nominations from his work on Cinderella Liberty. In addition to a nomination for original score, he was nominated with Paul Williams for writing Nice to Be Around. This was the first Oscar nomination in the original song category for both of them, but it wouldn't turn out so well. This was the year of Marvin Hamlish, a 29-year-old musical prodigy who was a student at the Juilliard School when he was just seven years old. Hamlish became the first musician to sweep all three music categories at the Oscars in one year, taking the song award for the immensely popular The Way We Were, and then the original score for that film won the Oscar as well. And as I mentioned in the Tom Sawyer episode, Hamlish picked up another Oscar for his work adapting Joplin's music for the Best Picture winner, The Sting, beating out John Williams' work on Tom Sawyer. It was certainly Hamlish's year, as the younger composers swept the boards at the Oscars. And Hamlish would go on to be one of only 15 people to be what's known as an EGOT, that is, the winner of an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. In fact, him and Richard Rogers are the only two people ever to win all these awards plus a Pulitzer Prize. So I guess if you're going to lose to, to anyone, then Marvin Hamlish may as well be that person. But John Williams would get his revenge at the Oscars with Star Wars in a few years. But those three losses at the Oscars in April 1974 were nothing compared to the loss John Williams faced the previous month. His wife, Barbara Ruick was getting back into acting after a lengthy hiatus, taking on a small role in Robert Altman's California Split. While filming in Nevada on March 3, 1974, Ruick died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage. I've never been able to find out if Ruick had any illnesses that would have caused this or if it really was sudden and unexpected, Chris. Well, one can only imagine what it must have been like to have your whole life turned upside down in this way. And left with three teenage children to look after and losing your soulmate, it's hard to imagine how anyone could find the strength to keep going. But people do, people must, and Williams did. I wouldn't want to speculate on how he coped with this kind of grief, even after all this time, but I'm sure that music massively helped his emotional recovery. And for two years after his wife's death, Williams would work on his violin concerto, I imagine that creating this piece was a source of comfort amongst all the Hollywood madness over the next few years. Yes, I can't wait to start talking about that in a few episodes. Mm. Well, on that sad note, that will wrap it up for our discussion of Cinderella Liberty. Again, Chris, thank you so very much for joining me today. I'm really honored, and thank you. I know you're very busy with Hamilton, so thank you 
to take the time out to uh, to talk about this. And I could really see why you enjoy this score, and I appreciate appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for inviting me to join you on this episode. Little scores such as Cinderella Liberty will always find a way onto my playlist. And I hope this episode has persuaded others to seek out this absolute gem of a score. It's been a real honor to do this, and best of luck, Jeff, with the rest of the project. And thanks to all of you for listening. The next episode takes us to 1974, a year that is famous for starting the most famous film collaboration of all time. But first, we will examine the score to the little scene film Conrack, reuniting Williams with director Martin Ritt. Until then, as they say in the UK, the baton is down.